when you uh, read or sing Psalm 119, would we have that hunger uh, for God's word? Would we realize the distress and anguish uh, is not found in God's precepts, uh, but in our own foolishness? And so let us hunger for this word together. Uh, From Matthew 22, beginning at verse 15, this is the word of God. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. You do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. It's got to be one of those phrases that transcends the original context of the Gospels, isn't it? So many phrases that, that Jesus spoke that we have in our New Testaments, of course, enter into our everyday vocabulary, and we start to just use them as, uh, as citizens in, in the Western world that are so familiar with these phrases. This one has to be right at the top. Even if you can't identify where it comes from, uh, most people, I think, if you touch them, talk to them on the streets, would, would at least have heard the idea of rendering to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. This phrase maybe feels even more popular, more relevant in the United States, uh, because foundational to our republic is the separation of church and state. The First Amendment of our Constitution says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And so maybe do we have Jesus 1,800 years or so before the establishment of the United States arguing for the same separation? Isn't that what we have? Secular state, Caesar. Spiritual state, God. Don't mix them up. You may hear that kind of idea occasionally, but that's not quite what Jesus had in mind. Arguably, anyone listening to Jesus or reading Matthew originally would have absolutely no idea what you were talking about if you started talking about separating church and state. It wouldn't have made any sense to them. See, the problem, and I'm starting here, is that rendering to Caesar feels kind of like a wax nose that we can manipulate to to fit our, our perspective. It can fit our political understanding and how we relate our faith to the common place. It's so easy to read this conversation through the lens of modern ideas of politics, but to do so, I think, is mistaken. This passage will teach us something about how we are to understand our relationship to the state, but in the end, it's so much more than that. It it, kind of reminds me of of why do we follow Jesus, And, and oftentimes, I think the answer has to be because he is not the savior that I would create from my own imagination. He's far too confrontational of me. And yet in that confrontation, there is a tenderness and a mercy that we find. And I think that's all on the table here, even in this passage of rendering to Caesar what is Caesar. What we'll see this morning is that really this is one more episode, one more debate that teaches us about who Jesus is. And also the utmost allegiance that his kingdom demands, even amidst the earthly kingdoms that we live in. And so this morning, we're going to walk through this this little debate that Jesus has. And we're going to look at the test. They bring a test to him. 
Uh, we're going to look at the, the, the crux of the matter, which is the tax in question, and then we'll look at the truth. What do we need to walk away from this passage understanding? The test, the tax, and the truth. First of all, what is the test? The religious authorities, uh, the opponents of Jesus, are playing a game of stump the professor, aren't they? Uh, but we know from the beginning that, the, that this is not a good faith exercise. They have come not for the truth. They've come to trap Jesus. Um, as we have seen, e- even for the last few weeks now in, in these later chapters of Matthew, ever since Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey, he has, for the most part, embarrassed the Pharisees. Uh, they were not used to being embarrassed. They were used to being respected. They were used to being feared. But this was new to them. And they can't just arrest Jesus. They can't just put Jesus away because he has gained some popularity. The crowds are at least interested. They're enamored with who Jesus is and they want to know more about the kingdom that he is ushering in. And since they can't make him stop, maybe they will get himself, they'll make it so he gets himself in trouble. What's immediately noteworthy is who confronts Jesus. Matthew lists the Pharisees. We've seen plenty of Pharisees. And he he lists the Herodians. They were uh, two opposite ends of the political spectrum uh, coming together. This is like Republican and Democrat crossing the aisle like in 2021, not not 25 years ago. Like we live in a a hyper-polarized political time. Uh, We can't disappoint our Twitter and Facebook constituents. And so any sense of of forming an alliance is is betraying our principles. That's what we have here. It's escalated. It's heightened. And yet Pharisees and Herodians, they join hands. The political left and the political right have come together united against Jesus. The Herodians were the party that supported the current administration. They supported Herod. This was for them the best shot at restoring Israel's greatness. Rome wasn't all bad. Rome brought infrastructure. Rome brought roads and clean water and sanitation. Even if it came by the sword against their own people, which it did, they did bring peace to a volatile region. The last thing they want is revolution. And here comes Jesus saying, I'm bringing a kingdom. And they say, no, 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 no. We don't want any of that. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the Pharisees. Their hatred for Herod knew no bounds. Oh, they hated Herod. He was a sellout. He sold the soul of Israel to a wicked people uh, who would be able to tell God's own people in God's own land what they can and cannot do. And so as Bible-believing followers of God's commandments, there isn't enough infrastructure, clean water, or sanitation, or roads in the world that could make you take that deal. And so these two political enemies become unsuspecting allies and they come to Jesus. What's interesting is that for, for some reason the Pharisees don't come. Did you notice that? They send their disciples, they send their interns. They've been embarrassed by Jesus enough, and so they use human shields, and they say, well, go, uh, go test Jesus again. And so out come the disciples with the Herodians, and tell us what happens. I mentioned that this passage is about who Jesus is, uh, and that's where this starts, right? They come and address Jesus just about as truthfully as anyone could. Have, have truer words ever been spoken about Jesus than what we have in our passage? Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Isn't that remarkable? Their mouths are capable of saying all of the right things, profoundly right things. Uh, What's one of Jesus' most famous self-descriptions of himself? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And out of the mouths of these hypocrites who hate Jesus, they say, teacher, you are true. And you teach the true way of the Father. 
You do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Literally, it says, you do not see the face of people. They summarize Jesus perfectly over the last few chapters and over his ministry. He speaks the truth. He reveals God. He does not change his tune based upon who he is speaking with, which is such a beautiful description of who Jesus is, isn't it? He is so secure in himself. He is so secure in the Father's love that it does not matter who he is speaking to. Um, He is free to love that person and to minister to them where they are. They're buttering Jesus up, but they're beautifully describing him. And so he is so secure in the Father's love that whether you are a poor beggar or you are the the general of some Roman legion, uh, he will speak directly to you and he will give dignity to both parties. Whether you are the leader of a synagogue, a community leader, whether you are the high priest or you are a woman who has to go to the well to get water in the middle of the day because of the shame and embarrassment of the community's derision of you, Jesus looks into the eyes of both sets of people and he gives himself to them. You do not see people is another way of saying Jesus perfectly sees people. We don't see people. They are in the presence of the truth. They are in the presence of the way. They are in the presence of the life, and they just want to trap him. Why? Because all they care about is their own earthly power and glory, and they want to maintain it, and they want to keep it. That's the test. Now, what, what's, the, what's the crux of the matter? Second point, the tax. Verse 17, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They're approaching Jesus as a rabbi. This is actually a very formal address. Uh, Rabbi, is it lawful is basically what they're asking. And so they want him to opine. They want him to give his opinion. Technically, how does Torah, how does the Old Testament law speak into this this naughty issue, knotted issue, uh, confusing issue of whether or not we should pay this tax to Rome? These two political opponents come with a shared question, but with different interests. It's a trap because uh, basically they formed an alliance because they think, you know, one of their sides is going to win at the end of the day. They inquire about taxes paid to Caesar. The tax in question was a poll tax that was levied on all Jewish men paid directly to Rome. It was a denarius, which was one day's wage paid for the entire year. And so it's not overly burdensome, but as you can imagine, it was really irritating to pay. Maybe it was more than irritating because this tax, more than anything, this one tax, this was the primary mark of their political subjugation to Rome. This tax was the yearly reminder uh, that they belonged to a foreign empire. And so here's the dilemma they're presenting to Jesus. If Jesus says, don't pay the tax, the Herodians go, aha, and they march down to the office of Pontius Pilate and they say, there is a guy who is promoting sedition, arrest him. If Jesus says, well, no, go ahead and pay the tax, the anti-Rome crowd behind the Pharisees will turn against Jesus, and the Pharisees will go, he's offering nothing. We're waiting for God's kingdom. We're waiting for Rome to get their comeuppance, and this Messiah is just saying, pay the guy. What kind of deliverer is that? So what will it be? Verse 18, Jesus recognizes from the start, of course, he knows this is just a charade. He's aware of their malice. That can be translated evil, wickedness. Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? The consensus is that Jesus is the one that created this word as a moral category. It's a technical word. In Greek theater, a hypocrite was someone who got on stage, they wore a mask, and they changed parts. And Jesus gave us a moral quality that says that which is outward does not reflect what is on the inside. Outwardly, you're you're, you're buttering me up on the inside. You hate me. You are a hypocrite. 
They called them all the right things. On the outside, they looked the part, and on the inside was evil. Jesus says, I see what you're doing. Just bring me the coin. And they bring him the denarius. This coin had both an image and an inscription. The image was of Tiberius Caesar, and the description, the inscription read, Son of the Divine Augustus. Jesus asks whose likeness is on the coin, and they respond, well, it's, it's Caesar. And he says, then, then, then render, which really means give back to, not give to, but give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, then to God the things that are God's. Now, why is this a pretty good answer that they accept? Two reasons. The first point is that this is not a gift, and I think that's key. You're not doing Rome any favors. Rome found the material. They minted the coin. The coin bears the image of Caesar. What do you care? It belongs to him anyway. You're not gifting Rome anything. It belongs to them. Give it back. Pay the tax. Secondly, give back to God what belongs to God. This is not a separation of powers, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit. This is not a separation of powers. It is an ordering of powers. Your allegiance to God, friends, is not in question uh, when you pay a tax to the great empires of the world because remember, they also belong to God. And that's a key point. Well, they marvel. They say this guy has somehow threaded the line enough for us to be satisfied. Most of us are familiar with this idea of rendering to Caesar. So what does it mean? What are the truths that we're supposed to walk away with? What does it mean for us today to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's? And this is the last point that we're entering into. This is where we'll conclude. And I'm grabbing three truths that I think we can walk away with and apply to our everyday lives. The first truth, which I think can be affirmed, absolutely. Not everyone agrees with this, but I think they are wrong. And I'll tell you why I think they're wrong. First, Jesus is definitely recognizing a legitimacy of government. Even pagan, unbelieving government. He is ushering in the kingdom of God, but this kingdom is different than what was being expected. Whatever kind of king and kingdom here to a large percentage of the people, and soon they will crucify him, it's going to be disappointing. Because it's not promising the earthly glory and power that both the Herodians and the Pharisees are after. The anti-Rome folks, followers of the Pharisees, they want a revolution. It's not what Jesus has come to offer. Jesus, I think, is making the point uh, that government may not be godly. Rome may fail to proclaim the God of Israel, but it is still good. And it is still capable of doing relative good under the sovereign hand of God over all the earth. The hearts of kings are in his hands, right? Undoubtedly, Jesus influences Paul as an understatement, right? And this is where I think this, this does speak to the legitimacy of government because Paul will elaborate for us, I think, at least in part, what it means to render unto Caesar. And so we do turn to Romans 13, where Paul writes, let every person be subject to governing authorities. Uh, by this point, for all intents and purposes, you have a far more wicked empire against God's people uh, than when Jesus was doing his ministry. Uh, Rome no longer had their, their foot to the neck of God's people. They had a sword to their neck. And yet Paul could say, be subject to governing authorities. His main point is that God's governing authorities are his ministers of righteousness. And your ability to be faithful, this is key, especially for the Pharisees, your ability to be faithful to God and faithful to his kingdom is completely irrespective of whoever is in charge. Did you notice how Dan didn't pray for Cuba this morning? He didn't pray, God, would you start working in Cuba? 
But would you provide safety for our brothers and sisters? Would you provide freedom for them? But nowhere do we ask God to start getting to work because we already know God's at work. Irrespective of our earthly circumstances, God is at work, and that's the great hope. Uh, you're, you're nuts if you want uh, to, to be persecuted as, as a Christian. We know that Christianity throughout history has at times been a leavening influence on culture. At times, it is a minority population. What we confess is that God is equally at work in both. As the reformer Theodore Beza famously put it, the church is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. That's not what the Pharisees want to hear, but it's what Jesus affirms. Second truth we take away, Jesus is inherently helping us to establish a value system. This passage, remember, is not about a separation of church and state. Uh, It's a reordering, or it's an ordering. It's a pronouncement that there are ultimate and there are penultimate things. Or maybe another way of saying that is, uh, there are ultimate things, and there are things that are not ultimate. And therein lies the key. What are the words that you would use for the political environment we live in in a post-Christian society? I think this is one of the examples of a post-Christian society. We would use polarized. We would use divided. We would use ultimate. I would use the word idolatrous. Left, right, it doesn't matter. The political situation in this country too often is idolatrous. Because when political and civic engagement is ultimate, then anger And fear controls our hearts, and our political opponents become heretics. We live in a society that renders to Caesar what belongs to God, and and Christians have, have been no better historically at doing that. When good things, love of country and neighbor, I think patriotism is a great thing. I think patriotism is a classical virtue Uh, And it also speaks truthfully to your vocation. God has not called you to a country, a state, a community for you to hate it. He has called you to a country, a state, and a community to invest in and love. Patriotism is a good thing. To hate your country is a failure of vocation. But when it becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. Questions of societal good and flourishing are really, really good questions, but they're not the ultimate question. I know that's controversial, but it's not the ultimate question. Questions of how to achieve a more just society, uh, when that becomes ultimate, what happens is you create alternative secular salvation projects, and then we know we're in the territory of idolatry. Now, does that mean political issues aren't important? Am I just doing this like middle-of-the-road squishy thing where we're not supposed to have principles and we're not to have commitments? And I would say no, because let me ask you, were the Pharisees' political issues not important? I think they were so important. I would argue they were maybe more important because the Pharisees are literally wondering, we know that we're God's people and we know that God has given us this land and so what the heck is happening? And yet Jesus does what? He does skirt the issue and he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, to God's what is God's. This is what John Calvin writes about the problem here. Christ's worship is violated by their taking up with such a burning zeal a trivial matter. Isn't that kind of offensive? He just called the Pharisees' concerns a trivial matter. What does he mean by that? Are you giving burning zeal to something that is undeserving of your burning zeal? And there Jesus would say yes. Not everything is deserving of our burning zeal. Hold your politics, hold all penultimate things loosely, and hold on to Jesus' kingdom tightly. Third and final truth, this is the big one. 
Jesus takes the question about taxes and does something different with it to help us grasp a bigger reality. Give back to God what belongs to God. Now here's what it may not seem like. But the analogy I would use of what's happening here is that they come to Jesus with a pack of hot dogs and a box of macaroni and cheese. And they say, make dinner. And Jesus comes back with a four-star dining experience. Jesus is making more than just your dramatic point when he asks whose image is on the denarius. The coin bears the image and inscription of Caesar, so give it back to him. Give back to God what belongs to God. In other words, uh, if the coin bears Caesar's image, it belongs to Caesar. So now we're asking the question, what bears God's image? We do. We bear God's image and inscription. We do. Human beings do. Genesis 1, God created male and female in his image and likeness. You're asking about the lawfulness of a tax. This coin is nothing compared to the entirety of you and what you owe. That which bears the image of God belongs back to God. Uh, We also bear the inscription. Exodus 13, God delivers his people through the Passover, and he says, you are going to put these words all over your body so that you don't forget them. You're going to put it on your forehead. You're going to put it on your hand. In Isaiah 44, here's this picture of of this, this incoming of the remnant. Some of the people are talking about how they belong to God. Others are writing on their hand they belong to God. Then skip to the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. No longer are we binding God's word to our foreheads. No longer are we writing God's word on our hands. The spirit of God inscribes upon our hearts God's word. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. So from physically wearing the law to writing God's law on your heart... We bear the inscription of God. I will be their God. They will be my people. We wear that in ourselves. We have the image in our entirety. God has all of us. Love God with what? Every part of your being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. God gets all that we are created to be. God says, I have you. You belong to me. D.A. Carson writes, Jesus' famous utterance means that God always trumps Caesar. We may be obligated to pay taxes to Caesar, but we owe everything, our very being, to God. Everything is owed back to God and for his sake. Jesus' idea of rendering to Caesar would be foundational for how the apostles thought about their relationship to the state. Especially in the case of Paul and Peter. Render to Caesar because ultimately even Caesar belongs to God. 1 Peter 2, uh, be subject to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme, and he goes on. Now, why are we to be uh, subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake? For the Lord's sake. When you know that all is God's, then anything you render to Caesar, you will render for God's sake. Any authority you ascribe to Caesar, you ascribe for the sake of God's greater authority. Any obedience that you render to Caesar, it is for the sake of the obedience to God. Any claim Caesar makes on you, you test according to the higher authority of God. God wants all of us. Now, this isn't just some abstract academic debate between Jesus and his theological opponents. Uh, I would argue, and this is where we'll close, and this is essential, this conversation, even though it may not seem like it, we, we can brush past it, this conversation is another paving stone on the way to the cross. How is that? God wants all of you and all of me. God is owed all of you and he's owed all of me. My question for you is, have you given God your all? Have you given God uh, your all this morning? Have you you given God your all this past week? 
Far too many of us render to less than ultimate things that which alone belongs to God. Undoubtedly, we render to Caesar what belongs to God, or we render to our careers what belongs to God, or we render to other people what belongs to God. We render to ourselves what belongs to God. Where have you given your all this week? Jesus says, render to God what belongs to God uh, to a people that are spiritually incapable of doing this in and of themselves. Jesus says, render to God what belongs to God to a people spiritually incapable of doing this in themselves. How do we know that? Because this book, Genesis to Malachi, tells us they are spiritually incapable of doing that. Our track record, us in this room, of disordered desires and the worry and the anger and the unbelief that can control us, that's what we know so well. So how is this another paving stone on the way to the cross? What is your hope today? God wants all of you, and he ensures that he will get all of you by sending his son, Jesus. You know, it's more than likely that a faithful Jew would never have that Roman coin in their pocket. It was considered an idol. It had a graven image on one side. It had blatant idolatry on the other. When Jesus asked for it, I guarantee it was a Herodian that had it and gave it over. It wasn't a Pharisee that had it. In fact, Rome had so much respect for the Jewish people, which is true, because the Jewish people were ancient. Even back in the first century, they were considered to be an ancient people. And so they minted a special copper denarius just for the Jewish people living in Palestine. But one day a year, they had to use the Roman coin, which they considered an idol. And what does Jesus do when he's in the temple? He says, hand me that idol, hand me that coin. Jesus takes that which is unclean into his hands, just like he will a few days later take our sin into his hands. Jesus will render all of himself to his Father for us so that we might know this joy. Too often we render to Caesar what belongs to God alone, or we render to a million other lesser gods what belongs to God alone. And so Jesus gave of himself in his entirety, emptying himself, poured out on the cross so that we might be filled. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, given so that we might be renewed in that same image. Let us hold those less than ultimate things loosely so that we can hold on to Jesus and his kingdom with an ever-tightening grip. Let's pray. Lord, your word both convicts us. Have we rendered back to you, Father, what you are owed which is our everything, our whole being, the entirety of ourselves. And yet, Lord, uh, we're reminded of the, the sweetness of the gospel, uh, not to be left in our conviction, not to be thrust back on ourselves and our own power and our own spiritual ability, uh, but instead we cast ourselves on the one who gave himself, all of himself, the one perfect image of God who rendered himself back to God. And Lord, we rejoice uh, that he did not do it just for himself, but he did it for his people. He did it, as Paul says in Colossians, so that we might be renewed in that same beautiful, perfect, stunning image of Jesus. Lord, help us to live uh, our lives in, in the, the truth of that reality. Lord, help us to rightly order our loves in this world as we navigate the different callings that we have, as we navigate our callings as, as in our families, in our workplaces, as citizens in, in a kingdom, uh, in, a, in a country, 
uh, in a state, in a community, all of the different hats that we wear, uh, the places that you have called us, help us to do it well. Help us to do it in a way where we give our heart uh, to that which is ultimate alone, which is to King Jesus and his better kingdom. And in giving our all to that kingdom, Lord, help us turn outward to a world that is in need of love, in need of Christ, uh, in need of hope, Lord. Help us to be those conduits of hope. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, Would you build us up in it? Would you renew us in Jesus' image through it? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.